this is in the 60s. We used to have motor cars with little quarter light windows at the front. You'd push a little window in front of your window or the driver to let the air come in on you. That was air conditioning in those days. And you could direct air onto your body. Anyhow, I got some fingerprints on this. They're knocking off car radios. A car radio was worth a fortune in those days. I'm talking a month's wages for a Ferris car radio. He'd jam a screwdriver in one underneath this little quarter window, and with his left hand, he'd prise her open, slip his hand down, unlock it, then screw the radio out. After about nine months, I've got about a hundred identifications on him, but I don't know who he is. I then said, all photos of car radio stolen I want on my desk every Monday morning. And I did this until suddenly around November, it stopped. Oh, I was broken hearted. <laughs> three months later, it started again. Anyhow, I went after him. I even went out on raids and things, but one morning they rang me and said, that bloody car radio thief, they shot bullets at a bloke who, who dropped a bag full, a chaff bag full of radios. He'd been in a car yard. Jeez. <laughs> they said, they got him in cells over here. Come over and look at his hands. <laughs> so I tootled over there to Randwick, it was. And there he was, insignificant little bugger, and I turned his hand over and I knew it was him immediately, and I said, hey... What happened to you at Christmas time? I missed you. You were not around here. <laughs> and he looked at me real strange and he said, I in hospital for nine weeks. <laughs> he was amazed. He was so amazed that when I explained things to him, he pleaded guilty to 523 charges in the finish. That was probably my most memorable uh, identification. And... He was a little Italian fellow and he used to send the money home to his mummy because uh, she wasn't allowed out of the country and Italian's pretty poor. So he's running around picking up a month's wages, you know, almost every night with the bloody easy Stephen. People leave their cars and he's in and out and taking the radio in within minutes. Remember his name was Renato, or Ronald, Zamagni. Yeah, look, there's a hundred stories like that. But yes, that's what gave me great satisfaction. Every day I had something to look forward to, something going on like a serial on a movie or a home and away or something or other that was continuous. A continuous excitement I had, but in between all that I'm just doing normal work. I'm searching the break and enter. I've got a drug raid over here. I've got to go out and do some special work somewhere else and but in between all that, when I had an hour to spare, I'd go looking for my two offenders. Welcome to Think Digital Futures, the show that tells stories from the digital age. I'm your host, Lawrence Bull. Barry Fay was a police detective in Western Sydney from the early 60s to the early 90s. His fingerprinting expertise helped solve numerous cases over that time, and he's written about many of them. Here's an edited excerpt from one of his real-life detective stories. And trigger warning, this is not a graphic story, but it does deal with sexual assault. There was very little daylight for police pursuing the Blacktown rapist for the first seven months of 1973. His third attack was just a few streets away from the previous two. Apart from a sleeping child, she was home alone. Her husband was on night work. He was a young detective. 
She was watching TV around 11pm when she heard a loose floorboard creaking in her bedroom. She turned down the TV and listened. Something was definitely in the bedroom. She calmly wrapped her hand around the nearest weapon available, a full bottle of gin. Gripping the bottle, she approached the bedroom and glanced through the doorway. Everything seemed to be in order. She reached for the light switch and saw a man's silhouette standing against the wall. She screamed as he leapt towards her. He held her in a headlock, placing his free hand over her mouth. When she struggled, he threatened to kill her. The family dog went into a barking frenzy and awoke the baby in an adjoining room. He told her to shut up or he'd kill the baby. He forced her into the bedroom. If you keep quiet, I won't hurt you, he said. She suddenly began to struggle violently and began to scream once more. He clamped down on her mouth and she shook her head from side to side and when his fingers slipped inside her mouth, she bit hard. This little housewife had now gained enormous strength. She pulled him out of the room with his fingers still locked between her teeth. The attacker panicked, ran back through the bedroom and disappeared out the window. Police discovered latent prints on the inside of the bedroom window. Unfortunately, the prints were of poor quality due to the fact it had been raining and the culprit's hands were wet. In this case, police forensics experts put powder on the window to reveal the prints. We used to have a record of identifications as they called latent fingerprints found at crime scenes, about the same as the road toll. In the 1960s, 70s, it was well over a 1,000. Now it's under a 1,000, isn't it? Every time we sent a car out, the fingerprint, all the photographs would be cut up into small three-by-two types of pictures and put in break and enters month of May. In Then there was by suburb. And then it was sexual offences, serious crimes. And I used to go through sex crimes to try and catch this Blacktown rapist fellow. Her husband believed the culprit was a local hoodlum seeking revenge for a previous arrest, but the prints couldn't be matched. About ten days later, when the victim answered the telephone, a young male voice said, I didn't get you the first time, but I'll rape you the next time you're alone. She immediately replaced the receiver and dialed her husband. The call wasn't going through. She heard the voice again, don't forget, I'll get you next time. How could the rapist have her phone number? We considered he might be a newsagent, milkman or a telecom technician, but these theories were of little help. The description of the man and the details of the attack were similar to two previous assaults nearby. Barry and his colleagues suspected they had a serial offender and police started patrolling the area at night. The attack stopped for a few months, then two more women were attacked, making a total of five. One by one, I compared the fingerprints found at the previous scenes. I found that the right middle fingerprint was identical with a print on a toolbox at the home of the second victim. Further lengthy comparisons revealed that a portion of the same fingerprint appeared on the window frame at the attempted rape of the policeman's wife. At last, we had something concrete to work on and a massive search was instigated at the Central Fingerprint Bureau. It was envisioned that up to a quarter of a million fingerprints would have to be checked. This Herculean effort required a large amount of time and the dedication of several men, our chances were small, perhaps non-existent, but we were optimistic because the evidence suggested that the offender was first and foremost a thief. So it's a lot of leg work, or, or finger work. There was a lot of brain work brain and work. finger work, yeah. Yes, because you got a little uh, rubber thimble on your finger and you're flipping over fingerprints. You'd have 350 in each box, they were all in little boxes. You'd go flick, 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 flick. Oh, wait a minute, that one's got a certain delta area that stands out. No, not him. Flick, 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 and away you go. That's how we used to search. 
if you could search one every 10 seconds, you're doing good. Because we didn't have computers, I used to put them together, and when I got enough fingers and I knew I had the actual offender, I would then search the three million fingers we had on file. Three million sets of ten, if you get my drift. Of course, we needed like at least half their fingers to be able to classify them to search them. I classified them up, and people come to help me on overtime, and we worked for 100 hours or more, and none of them are on record. So hence they kept leaving fingerprints without worry. Flick, 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 flick. The fingerprints in those days were classified in a certain way where you could take the 30 million fingers and put them down to, say, uh, 10,000. Days of tedious, time-consuming comparisons gradually drained our enthusiasm. One duplicated print was not enough to unravel the mystery. After the matching print, Blacktown Police organised a special patrol of an area about 9 kilometres long and 5 broad. The odometers on some of the police cars registered over 100 kilometres per shift. A fingerprint technician was on call at any time. I was working the streets at night, turning hands over. We get this bloke. I'll start hey, police here. I want to talk to you, man. This man wants to have a look at your hands. And he jumped up and down and screamed, what have I got on? He's just taking his girlfriend home, mind you. But he jumped up and down <laughs> screaming, every time I take my girl around the street home, you fellas jump out of the dark, scare me after death and demand to look at me hands. What's it about? <laughs> and it was, so, it was so funny in a way. And of course, it wasn't him. But that's what we did. We propped people in the streets after midnight because his general MO was after midnight. All these red herrings were completely frustrating. Some police believe we were on a wild goose chase. While on patrol, police would often contemplate the case. How could he have known the women were alone? What kind of occupation would allow him to prowl for most of the night? And how could he know his victims so well as to even have their telephone numbers, yet remain a stranger to them all? Meanwhile, fingerprint experts were comparing the one fingerprint we had to every latent print found at any crime scene around Blacktown over 12 months. Flick, 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 flick. The breakthrough... A breaking and entering offence gave us three more fingers on his right hand. Barry had actually been at that scene of the break and enter when those three prints had been recovered previously. It had been just before Christmas the previous year. If this story had been fiction, it could have come out of the pages of an Agatha Christie novel or from the board game Cluedo, or Clue if you're American. A theft had occurred during a dinner party. About eight couples had attended, and as is customary, the females had placed their handbags on a bed in the front room. Around midnight, as the guests were preparing to leave, it was discovered that all the handbags were missing and the bedroom window was wide open. My initial reaction was to suspect one of the guests. I applied fingerprint powder to the window and found four fingerprints appeared. If my suspicions were correct, I would soon have the culprit merely by eliminating the guests. However, the following day, the mystery deepened when all those present were eliminated with the fingerprints still not accounted for. A week later, the handbags were discovered by children playing near a roadway. The rapist's haul was around $400. With these extra patterns, we struck the jackpot again and again. Like a strange jigsaw puzzle, his fingerprints began to lock into place. Barry and his colleagues used prints from several crimes to stitch together what's called a composite set of prints. Frankensteining prints together like a jigsaw puzzle. This gave them all the fingers minus one thumb. Plenty to go by. I got a three fingers crawling in a kitchen window and then I matched them 
with four fingers crawling in a bedroom window. And then I get the photographs of them and cut them into little tiny squares and put them on a fingerprint card. That's what I did that nobody else did. I'd make a composite set, a pretend set of fingerprints, which were only photographs of latent prints found at a crime scene. And I'd stick them in amongst the 30 million and see what happens. And I, I solved quite a few that way. By linking all these prints, they knew their suspect was responsible for at least 10 break-and-enters, three rapes, and one attempted rape. The boss said to me one day, oh, geez, I wonder if he's just come from another state. And I said, leave it with me. I'll see if I can find out. And I went back through all the crime scene of the township of Blacktown for five years, and then I found him again on a stolen car. So I knew he was a native of Blacktown. That's why we called him the Blacktown Rapist. Around this time, a wallet from one of his victims was found at the bottom of a lift well at the Sydney Waterboard, 35 kilometres from Blacktown. The wallet was discovered by a repairman after it had jammed the lift mechanism. Had the rapist disposed of the wallet after paying his rates, or was he an employee? There were thousands of workers at the waterboard, and our inquiries failed to throw any light on our quarry. After another attempted rape, the Blacktown police launched an appeal through the newspapers. That very evening, a phone call came from a retired policeman. A young man who fitted the description was associated with friends of his son. He had a number of rifles, one of which he bragged he'd purchased for $15 at a nearby hotel. His first name was Peter. He was employed by the Sydney Water Board where the stolen wallet had jammed the lift. His job had given him access to the names and phone numbers of his victims. He lived on the very edge of our patrolled area with his widowed mother and older brother. Late at night, I'm just getting a shower for an early morning start at 10 o'clock at night and they're ringing up, we're going to pick you up in a car, we've got a special suspect, somebody who's got guns and we know the, the Blacktown rapist had stolen some weapons at other crime scenes. Get your gear on and uh, your magnifying glass and get over here at Blacktown. So an hour later, I'm, I'm over there. By midnight, we're knocking on his door. Knocked and hammered for a while at his front door at midnight. Finally comes out, and here he is, the way I expected him to look. Long, black hair, which they had in the 70s. That's where the victims described him. Five foot seven, between five foot five and six foot. And, and all this... And the sergeant said, and this is one of our experts, he wants to look at your hands, turn your hands over. And I could feel the shake and the sweat coming out of him, you know. I, I didn't have to read between the lines hardly. I pulled out a magnifying glass with a quick look down and saw they were all circular patterns. And I was looking for a, what we call like a half moon, you know, a new moon, a banana-shaped bit of skin in the centre of his index finger and there it was and so I had a little signal for him. I said if we ever get close to it I'll say I've got to put his hands on paper sergeant and that's what I did and they jumped at him. One bloke's got his hand behind his back onto his belt holding him like he's a moo cow about to escape. <laughs> so uh, then we charged around got the guns and we knew the gun stolen by the Blacktown rapist where he left a fingerprint, had serial numbers. And sure enough, they matched. The fingerprints matched. We marched him down and charged him with about 29 counts of sexual assault and break and enter, and it's all in that story somewhere. And how did that feel once you realised? Oh, it was magic. For Barry, it was all about that moment. He'd joined all the dots. He knew the front of his suspect's hand 
better than he knew the back of his own. My whole career path was tied up with that duplication of crime scenes. Mm. The person who went to that crime scene is responsible for this second crime scene, so therefore I have his fingerprints. I know who the killer is, except I haven't identified at this point. And I could identify them virtually, almost visually, by turning their hands over, because of patterns mainly, yeah. When he turned their hands over, that's when everything fell into place. The pattern he'd stitched together with his composite photographs came to life before his eyes. There are three main types of fingerprint patterns. Loops, whirls, and arches. If you look at your fingers right now, the chances are you'll see some loops straight away. Loops have lines that come from one side of the finger, loop around the centre, and then go back in the direction they came. Like a kind of wavy U-turn. You might also have a few whirls. Whirls are pretty much what they sound like. Sometimes they look like a spiral pattern, other times they look like a kind of yin-yang symbol. Arches are more rare. Only about 5% of fingers have them. An arch is a set of lines that start at the bottom of one side of the print, rise up to make a hill in the centre, and then slope back down to the bottom of the other side. We are like archaeologists looking at artefacts and trying to make sense about how people used to live a long time ago. Now we do the same thing with our own artefacts, which may be fingerprints, DNA, maybe some digital traces. And we also try to find out not how people lived, but what people did and who did what in a much, much shorter period of time. So we are like a very nano-archaeologist, if you want, in terms of nano-time period. Claude Rowe is a forensic scientist at the University of Technology, Sydney. Research was done more than 100 years ago. It was 1914 by the famous forensic scientist Edmond Locard in, in, in France. And he got this sort of very rough, simple rules. You've got more than 12 corresponding points and no difference. You've got an identification. If you have between 8 and 12, you can't call it an identification, but that has to be double-checked by another expert. And then if you've got less than 8 you cannot say categorically that it's the right fingerprint. There was no computer in 1914, and Locker wrote that rule as a very rough rule. Now, 100 years later, the more we understand about the fingerprint pattern and the more complex systems have been developed, the more we realize that actually it was a very good rule. And everything that has been done at the cutting edge recently is in very strong accordance with that simple rule. By the time Barry left the police in the early 90s, this process had been digitised. I was the bloke that put in the very first fingerprint in the NAFIS computer from Japan. And at that time, I was working on bank card fraud, and they had one that was annoying me. It was about 40 identifications, but all we had was the side of his ring finger. That's all. He was very careful to drop his knuckles of his index and middle, but he'd leave part of his ring finger touching the paper. And here, I picked it, and the bloody computer got him in 1.9 minutes, and I'd already worked for two weeks on the damn thing. When I first started there in 66, I think it was, we got 200 identifications for the year, almost an identification every day of the week. 
When I left there one afternoon, I identified 1,200 crime scenes in one minute. How'd you do that? A thing called bank cards started to come into the country about 1970. And we rang them up and said, look, you're sending these frauds to us, but they're no good to us. We want you to make a new bank card format out so when they sign it, they hold the paper down with their left hand as they sign on the right side. So the all the Australian bank cards changed their format for the shops. And we used to get the left hand holding the paper down over and over and over, except for 10%, which are khaki handers, left handers. <laughs> yeah, they cause a few problems, but that's another story. But I'd got this person and I said, geez, the John Smith bank card fraudster is identical to the Billy Jones's bank card fraudster. And he's shopping at the rate of 10 gifts a bloody day. He's got a thousand twelve hundred identifications against him if we ever get him but he only dropped his little finger properly down to search don't forget we haven't got computers he dropped it once in all those twelve hundred crimes and i got onto it and i said well it's a little circular pattern at last i can give it a classification and invent the other nine fingers my own way so i sat down I said I identified it all in one minute. It took me three weeks to get to that one minute. And 30,000 fingers later on my last search, because it was one of those rare type of things, and shit, there he is. The fingerprint searchers are looking for constellations like the night sky. Nobody could computerise fingerprints. The Japs finally come up with a constellation idea. So you've got a fingerprint, whether it be a loop or a wall or an arch or whatever we want to call it, the papillary ridges or friction ridges come to stops and starts and little spots and little lakes and crossovers. And whenever it reaches one of those in their constellation, becomes a star in the night sky and it's joined to the next one and the next one until it forms a pattern, like a pattern in your constellations. The software certainly had a lot of benefits and it saved a lot of strain on Barry's fingers, but it also had its limitations. It could identify where ridges of skin stopped and started, but it didn't really see the complex geometry of the fingerprint. For that, you need someone like Barry to match them. Barry has been explaining this to lawyers in court for years. It does not identify anybody. Mm. The computers on TV will show you it goes wobble, 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 match. It's (laughs) all bullshit because a fingerprint computer cannot identify a fingerprint properly on its own. We can see there were three or four skin points, but not enough to take them to court and hang them for it. Now they bring this new software in, they can zoom in on the tiniest follicle and blow it up, and we can get 10 points of identity enough to hang them. Traditionally, in many countries, you would have a certain number of corresponding points between a finger mark and a print on file, then you would say, this is your blog. But there was no real science behind that. It was kind of arbitrary, and there were some even didn't even make sense from a scientific viewpoint because you have this fall of the cliff effect. Uh, so if, if you put the limit at 12, 
At 12, you say joke blogs. At 11, you don't say anything. You don't even report it. <laughs> Students, for example, they know that, and, and academics, they know that, because when you mark exams, if you put a threshold at 50 for a past exam, I can guarantee you not a lot of academics or seasoned academics would report marks at 49 or even 48. <laughs> if it's a fail, it's a, make it a real fail. <laughs> Humans are not very good at around this sort of threshold. It's more continuum. People want a, a yes or no, right? They want to say, was it his fingerprint or not? But you're saying there are gray areas. Yes, definitely. There are gray areas. It's all this nuance that has to be expressed. The projects Claude is working on are at the cutting edge of fingerprint identification. The skin has some elasticity. If you put your fingerprint on, say, the table, depending how you twist your finger, the pattern will slightly change. So there will be some distortion. There is a limit of this elasticity. And the question is, when you see tiny little difference, is it due to this distortion? Or is it due simply that we cross the line and it, it's not the right finger? So we use that sort of idea to try to develop a model to help fingerprint experts to get some kind of a, almost a red light alert, you know, saying, oh, be careful in your marking here because you are around a very difficult threshold. The development of fingerprinting in the late 1800s was really the birth of modern forensic science and it captured the public's imagination and inspired the golden age of detective fiction in popular literature with characters like Sherlock Holmes. The big thing about our forensic or scientific police of yesteryear was that they were glorified photographers. They didn't take fingerprints, they weren't experts. They did other work like try to match jemmy marks same screwdriver and all this sort of thing. Today, of course, all those forensic fingerprint fellows, they're all going through tech and doing absolute courses at the university. But it's practical work that really proves a fingerprint expert. It's kind of a back to the future for forensic science because it's what, without the IT side of it, it was what forensic science used to be 100 years ago. But then, we, because of the technology on, on the chemistry and biology, we moved so far towards the traditional laboratory. And now we realize that actually that becomes less and less efficient, uh, more and more costly. And slowly we see that actually if we go back to what it used to be, but now using modern technology, IT systems that can help to cross all these different types of information. It makes the whole field much more efficient. When DNA identification came in in the late 80s, it took the limelight. But in the new millennium, improvements in detection technology and data analysis mean fingerprinting has made a big comeback. Fingerprinting is more truthful than DNA. And some people say, bullshit, it's so perfect. And I say, well, give me identical twins and tell me which one pulled the trigger. Mm. I can tell you by his fingerprints, you know. And even if we clone a human being tomorrow, like Dolly the sheep, it'll have different fingerprints. So you'll never get a perfect clone. <laughs> have you ever heard of the Diane Quinn tuplets? No, I don't think so. A famous case where the one ovum or egg of a woman divided to, to two made twins. It's been fertilised by the one man. And then the two twins, they divided to make four. And then one of them, other eggs, divided again to make five. 
mono or zygotic twins, absolutely identical in every fashion, same sperm, same egg, same DNA, and every one of them had different bloody fingerprints. Fingerprint evidence is much stronger in some respects than DNA, and the multiplication of points are in the billions, just like the DNA. But DNA is so simple. If you get a hair out of a head, you got them. You know, where fingerprints are delicate, can be lost easily climbing in the window. Sweat too much and we lose them. Too dry our hands like a gardener, we lose them. Those sort of things are against fingerprints. But in actual identification, identification value, fingerprints outweigh DNA. Knowledge is like a, like a staircase when you go kind of circle but going up. You improve a bit your knowledge and you've got new information and new knowledge coming thanks to various development. But very quickly you realize that you are almost back at the same point. The same fundamental concepts are still there and you just reinforce the knowledge that was already known. You've been listening to Think Digital Futures, where we tell stories from the digital age. Subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or any other podcasting app. And if you've liked any of our episodes and you want more, give us a rating on iTunes. This program is a collaboration between UTS and 2SER. Thanks to our executive producer, Miles Martignoni, and the voice of our edit of Barry's true crime story, Sean Britton. I'm your host, Lawrence Bull. Talk to you next time.